The Sustainable Development Goals, those targets that the international community has set to improve the lives of everyone around the world, are huge and interconnected. There are 17 of them, and they cover not only health, but poverty, gender equality, the environment, justice, many more. There's even a specific goal for partnership. While those goals are all laudable, criticism of how achievable they are has been aired. And if you've listened to this podcast before, you'll have heard that. Some of that criticism is around the ability of all of the different players in the system to actually adhere to Goal 17, that one about partnership. Well, a new collection just published on bmj.com from the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health brings together case studies from 12 countries which demonstrate that multi-sectoral working is not only possible but can be really productive. Those case studies were then analysed and the key lessons from them identified. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. And firstly, we have Wendy Graham, Professor of Obstetric Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Wendy, thanks for taking some time to talk to me today. Thank you, Duncan. Delighted to be here. We also have Shiyama Kuruvilla, Senior Strategic Advisor for the World Health Organization. Shiyama, thanks for joining us too. Thank you, Dun- Duncan, and look forward to chatting with you and Wendy. Great. Um, so I think it's really important at the beginning of this to kind of set out what it is we're talking about with these collaborations. I think people hear a lot about um, Millennium Development Goals and Sustainable Development Goals and uh the Paris Accord and, and all these other kind of big multinational collaborations. Um, and so uh, really at the beginning, what are the projects that we're, we're talking about? What do they relate to? And um, uh, what was kind of special about them? Wendy, maybe you could start by answering that. Thank you, Duncan. And yes, uh, be, this will be an interesting conversation because as one of the co-chairs, I suspect that both Sharma and I have a slightly different take on some of these issues. So it'll be, it'll be really interesting to, to have this as a conversation. So so the 12 case studies, I mean, they are uh, they were invited. They were actually, um, there was a call out for people to apply. Um, and in response to that, there were very many countries and country groups that wanted to uh, respond and be, be part of this. And out of that, 12 case studies emerged. In essence, uh, the heart of them is that all of them relate in one way or the other to aspects of what we call the global strategy for women's and children's health. I mean, very sadly, still, each year there's about six million women, children and adolescents who die of preventable causes. And so at one level, the, the, the country case studies are all united by a concern to do something to accelerate reductions in those preventable deaths. But the the way they've gone about it, uh, which is the core of this series, is to not just rely on actions within the health sector, which many of the audience reading or listening to this podcast and and reading the series, um, not the sort of usual suspects in the health sector, but these are projects and initiatives that explicitly and intentionally set out to work across other sectors to both accelerate and to achieve a greater gain. So their sort of uniqueness or their added value is that issue of collaboration, intentional collaboration, not by accident, 
but seeing that that type of collaboration beyond the health sector, so for example, into education or into the financial sector, into issues of transport, etc., that, that it was these were projects where that uh, element of collaboration really helped to make a difference to the outcomes that they were trying to achieve. So, as I said, it's, uh, we all talk about working together, but these are 12 case studies where they did actually work together and they've got some very positive experiences along the way. Is multi-sectoral working, do you think, the key to, to you know, really getting a handle and, and tackling some of those, those big problems that um, the Millennium Development Goals and now the Sustainable Development Goals um, are really aiming to do? Yes, I mean, I think like a, a lot of us who, who've worked in this field for quite some time, there, there's no magic bullet. So there's no one thing that's going to accelerate progress. And it, it, it is. And I think that's in partly speaks to this issue of, of one of the things about multi-sectoral collaboration is, is recognising it may be the same problem, but you can tackle it from lots of different angles and you can tackle it, tackle it more effectively if you join together to achieve that, that common goal. So, for example, if you look at one of the problems that certainly happens in the sort of maternal health area is access to delivery care. And although that access to quality delivery care involves many things to do with the health sector and the Ministry of Health and all the other health players, again, who who will very much read this journal, you know, without access to good roads, for example, which is not the Ministry of Health's usual responsibility, you know, what we can achieve within the health facility is limited Whereas if we join up with another sector, which is focused on transport and communication, then we can have both an accelerated, but also hopefully a sustainable difference as well. So the exciting thing of this series is that, you know, it's not always easy to work together. My goodness, we know that in the health professions. Um, It's easy to say we need to do it, and it's much harder to do it, to actually achieve that. It's not the panacea for every problem as we go forward. But certainly it may well have a very important difference in terms of accelerating progress. So it's not that do we need it, yes or no, it's more about how to do it. We're talking about case studies here. And a really good example of that intersectoral working was what happened in Chile. There, the Chile Grows With You project aimed to help parents of young children reach all their growth milestones. I'm Paula Valenzuela. Um, I'm a Chile worker that I work uh, as a part of the national team of Chile Grows With You when it was designed and in the first nine years that it was implemented. It is important to highlight that Chile Grows With You is based on a solid platform of social and children's services, uh, which Chile already had. Therefore, one of the main design challenges was to effectively take advantage of all existing resources. Some benefits or services were scaling up from a small initiative as the personalized accompaniment of the birth card or the workshop to support the upbringing. Um, therefore, the experience of the family before startup uh, of Chile Grows With You uh, differed mainly in the quantity, quality, and integrity, integrality of the support action uh, that they reci- received, and it was depend of the place where they reside. So, Chile Grows With You establishes a minimum level of uh, development e- equity for all children committing a base of services that every child should receive through the country. 
with the help of Paula, Claudia, Natasha and Patricio at Chili Grows With You, we also asked some parents about their family's experiences. This is from Lynn, who has one child. The service helped us as a family to understand many things about the growth and physical development of our child. It allows us to manage their emotions, their tantrums and learn to support their physical development, their meals, as well as to clear our worries about their safety. Likewise, it has allowed us to learn the signs of discomfort and how we can react in a good way. It was decided to involve every actor that had a specific role in the promotion of early childhood development and in the support of families, health benefit, education and social protection. However, uh, each local network is called to build a broader network of actors. For example, if there is a high concentration of indigenous population and it is required to articulate with uh, support action for families that include this dimension. In the case of uh, Nobody's Perfect, uh, this was a a strategy that uh, the government of Canada made available to the government of Chile to be adapted and implemented in our country. Uh, It was a strategy that showed a good level of evidence regarding its impact on Canada, that's allowing to standardize uh, and give higher level of quality to the workshop that each local team created. Nobody's Perfect is a parenting workshop. It helps reassure parents that the problems that they have with their children are not theirs alone. And it helps them with some strategies to improve their parenting skill. This is from Cindy, who has a young daughter. The programme helped me share and understand that concerns should be discussed, addressed and mediated with people, depending on the situation. Also, to put myself in the place of my daughter, understand beyond feelings and emotions, to be able to support her and improve her well-being always whilst understanding and taking into account my emotions and feelings. The project was championed by the President, Michelle Bachelet, amongst a raft of reforms her government initiated. Yeah, I think that it was, without a doubt, transcended. Uh, it is not the only key element for the success of the policy, but building a system of this scope and scope Calling it up requires resources and concrete supports. Um, the strong conviction of the president in the sense of the need to invest in the first years and to do it uh, through a systemic and intersectorial model was therefore the tip of the arrow to hit the target uh, since it greatly uh, facilitated the alignment of the political and technical authorities of the various sectors involved against a sufficient uh, budget and sustained uh, over time and finally push for allow uh, Chile Gross with you to consolidate itself as a state policy, being able to transcend uh, change in government administration. I'll leave the final word on Chile Grows with you to Maria who has a four-year-old. Yes, I have received the services that Chile Grows With You has in easy ways, since they are concentrated in the same place, which is a health centre or places close to it. 
It is a friendly, fast, useful service, of which I'm very satisfied. In this collection, in these series of case studies, um, you've pulled together lots of stories of where this kind of multi-sectoral, uh, in lots of different ways, uh, multi-sectoral working has, has led to good outcomes. Shyama, maybe if I could start by asking you then, you've spent a long time looking at all of uh, these case studies. Any uh, lessons that you've that you've garnered from from all of the all of that work? Both the process of looking at the country case studies and uh, of conducting the country case studies with all the country partners and teams and learning from that, as well as learning from the actual substance or content of the case studies was fascinating. Um, and I think uh, if I that one of the main findings that struck me is that these these case studies were all trying to look at how do we organize ourselves better as societies? How do we make sure we are defining our shared goals, that we are building on the best evidence, that we are trying new ideas and designing solutions that can help us solve our problems, that we are using agreed and tested methods, and that we are not afraid to learn from both failures and from successes. And um, this was highlighted in the editorial that we wrote together with um, with Wendy and uh, Paul and Emma, who were the BMG editors on this series, calling this the silo-busting power of, you know, of the of SDG 17 to say that really the potential to work across society and sectors might actually be in SDG 17 and learning how to work well in partnership. And I'm sure Wendy has uh, more to add on that. What I found very um, enlightening and warming was the openness for sort of reflection and, and to be open about the, the learning successes, as it were, but also those things that didn't go quite so well. And, and in the editorial that Sharma has mentioned, we're trying to draw attention to this notion of you know, learning from failure. That, that, that word is not always well received. But, you know, we, we do learn and there, there are various examples of, of learning from things that haven't worked quite so well. And yet sometimes, particularly in an international development target setting, it's very hard, uh, you know, when things are performance driven and target driven, it's very hard to leave any room for learning by not such great success. And, and, and so to me, you know, we've created something here amongst this community of the 12 case study authors, whereby you know, they felt that there was an environment at which bits that works and bits that work less well were, were, could be aired. And, and I have to say, I, I would love to see much more of this, whether it's in randomised controlled trials that don't work or that we never get published, um, or, or these issues, particularly when you have the implementers that you're then asking to say, well, did it work? Well, just think how vested a question that is. That's a very difficult question. Um, you know, from a funding point of view, from all the things when people implement, they really wish with their heart things work. So, so to me, I think that reflective process and, and this this community from the 12 case studies, I think demonstrates this idea of a learning society so that you can evolve, you can continuously learn, you can reflect and you can be fearless or, or not fearful 
of sharing what worked and what didn't work. Um, and so to me, that was really, really warming. Yes, absolutely. And um, you mentioned their learning society, and that's something I hadn't actually heard of before um, talking about this. And it's not just... Uh, academics or, or people who are working in global health writing papers for us that um, that you're talking about here in in terms of learning it's literally everyone in society all the different groups working together could you uh, explain a little bit more about that and and perhaps how you, you saw that working uh, in some of the case studies that um, that you mentioned um, well maybe I'll start off um, with with the following up on this 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 issue so I mean the term learning society I'm afraid it's got sort of rather corrupted like any term that's rather catchy um, since it was originally coined in the late 1960s actually by someone who was an educational philosopher um, and he talks about a learning society as one where there's continuous learning active citizenship so issues of equality and, and equity and opportunity and social well-being. So, so recognizing this is a sort of social construct where we can continuously learn. And I think I think the Cambodian case is a particular example of that, where they talk about this idea of poverty identification and and how those that are disadvantaged and marginalized, you know, the, the challenge between targeting and therefore stigmatizing versus recognizing that if you don't have a way of identifying the poor, then you're not they're not going to benefit. And that's a really good example of, of sort of citizen in, citizen involvement as well. So, so yes, I mean, I think uh, in a mini way, the case studies are, are speaking to this issue of learning society, continuous learning, active citizenship and social well-being. Thank you. Um, and a couple of times there, you mentioned um, the people on the ground who are using this in Cambodia. It's maybe people who are economically deprived, um, different groups elsewhere. Uh, I think that was something reading these case studies that really um, struck me was that, you know, real people were part of that multi-sectoral group in a lot of the, the uh, case studies as well. Yes, and... Um... Building on uh, Wendy's um, really eloquent capturing of this idea of a of a learning society, um, as as um, a methods approach in the synthesis paper, we actually looked Duncan at the involvement of different stakeholders, including. The, the beneficiaries, as it were, but given that this is a kind of societal effort, it was everyone working together towards a shared goal. And we looked country by country, question by question at emerging themes. We also used a, almost like a hypothesis, um, a logic of inquiry that uh, a philosopher, John Dewey, very much aligned with the learning society, but uh, from 1938 had set out a logic of inquiry that could be, he thought, could be applied and tested in science and democracy. And it required all these elements of focusing on a public and social well-being of the active citizenship, and, uh, and but also about the agreed method of learning, which, which is drawn from science. And we see so many examples of how this, I, I think, Duncan, you mentioned this at the beginning, that it went beyond just academia learning or, or doing a study to actual involvement of 
of um, citizens. So, for example, in the U.S., the feedback, public feedback was built into the program and the program adjusted on a regular ongoing basis based on um, the public uh, feedback on safe spaces for children to exercise and, you know, uh, develop healthy weights. Similarly, in South Africa, even though the, pr the, the problem was the rising rates of HIV among young girls and uh, young women and girls, the issue was framed as one of empowerment. It was the program was called She Conquers, so that the education sector, women and girls themselves, and uh, the health sector and others could all work towards this good. And similarly, also in Malaysia, where this was the introduction of a really highly effective vaccine uh, against the human. Uh, papilloma virus to prevent cervical cancer it could have been done as a very biomedical approach, but in fact it was talking about uh, women and girls being, uh, you know, the, this this being a public good to protect the women and girls in that society. So it was a really different way of thinking that it was not that these issues from the beginning were not framed as something very scientific or biomedical that then excluded others, but more in a very inclusive way to facilitate that active citizenship and um, learning. And, and, and Duncan, if I could just add one more thing, if um, in what we're describing, everything comes across as really smooth and, you know, <laughs> and, you know, uplifting. It wasn't always. We, in fact, even during the process of this, uh, these case studies, had a volcano erupting in Guatemala or a government changing and snap elections. And I think that's that's life. And I think the richness of these case studies show that even though at the end of it and in writing a journal article, we try and tell a coherent narrative, it didn't always seem that way, uh, neither in the process of developing these this series nor uh, in the experiences of the countries. And as Wendy said, if we could find an innovative way, maybe through podcasts like you're doing and to really capture some of the reality, you know, more than the very smooth and over narratives, that would be amazing. You've given us a little flavour of a few of the case studies there, and we won't have time to go into all of them um, in this podcast. Uh, they're all freely available for people to go and read um, online. Uh, so I'd encourage them to do that. But um I just wonder, uh, maybe Wendy first, then Shiyama. Um, did you have a, a favourite one or one that felt really captured something unique or, or different or interesting? You know, what, which one of them stood out for you? That, so that's a difficult one. I mean, uh, as Shama said at the beginning, I mean, in lots, they're, they're diverse um, and uh, um, quite, to single up but if, if you really want to push me I suppose it's Sierra Leone actually um, and I suppose partly and I think perhaps also Afghanistan because as Shama says you know the real world carries on even if, even if you do commit to writing for the BMJ um, the rest of the world has to carry on but it's interesting because you'd have thought I me mean, both Sierra Leone and Afghanistan have got fragility um, in the Sierra Leone case you know as well as it being post post fragile state in from a sort of a, 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 um, a, a conflict point of view 
also the Ebola um, epidemic that, that sort of decimated so much of the services and, and had all sorts of societal effects as well. But I think I think for me, you know, in the face of adversity, the recognition in, in the case of, of Sierra Leone, it's about a radio program that's trying to support uh, Ebola affected children. So in lots of ways, I mean, for me, um, the you know the involvement of a civil society group and, and and then bringing in the Ministry of Education to me I suppose it's that issue that whatever the context however fragile however volatile it is that the power of partnership and the opportunity of coming together to synergize and to you know to add value and to go further than you might expect particularly in a, a fragile situation so for me the Sierra Leone one and uh, um, I guess all of us who work in this field, um, you know, we, we 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 feel passionately about women, child and adolescent health and male health as well, of course. But there's something about that, you know, the, if you remember any of what was going on in Sierra Leone at that time, you know, the consequences for children, whether it's being orphaned, I mean, just a very tragic situation and the whole potential impact on their schooling and, and therefore losing a whole uh, generation, as it were, with, with poor schooling. For me, that that touches at the heartstrings, but it's actually also a very good um, case study. You know, robust, transparent, good use of data. So for me, I would vote Sierra Leone, and that, that's very difficult because I think they're all very good. Wendy mentioned Sierra Leone there, and here's our second story. This audio is thanks to Penny Borum, who's a radio journalist who's been working with the charity Child to Child. And their partners in Sierra Leone, Pickin to Pickin. The UK Child Rights Agency, Child to Child, and its partner in Sierra Leone, Pickin to Pickin, initiated this radio project when Ebola was at its height. First, my father became ill. We all had to go to the treatment centre. My father died. I got better. But I was stigmatized. I was very afraid to go outside or move around. Now I'm suffering from the side effects of the illness. I have headaches, body aches, and I have trouble with my eyes. Sierra Leone's Ebola epidemic, which was officially declared over last November, although there were sporadic cases earlier this year, led to over 14,000 people being infected and claimed nearly 4,000 lives. Public gatherings were banned and schools closed to prevent the spread of infection. The radio programmes Pickin' to Pickin' Talk enable the children in this region to support one another and to feel heard and safe while doing so. As the Ebola crisis took hold in Sierra Leone, gatherings of people were banned and schools were closed in order to prevent infection. It wasn't possible for Child to Child's partner in Kailan District, the child rights activist Pickin to Pickin, which means Child to Child in Sierra Leonean Creole, to continue their work supporting young people. But it was absolutely essential to find a way to stay connected and get urgent messages across. So it became clear that radio was going to become the most effective way to communicate. Pickin' to Pickin's work already focused on providing a safe space for children to do what in the right circumstances comes naturally to them, support one another. And this became the focus of our radio broadcasts, which are in Creole, English and the most predominant language in the region, Kisi. At the height of the crisis, children were sharing important health messages. For the worst one, 
for prevent yourself for this Ebola. It's important for more good ones we hand them because Ebola don't care and educate person. With the good about for us we hand with chlorine and soap. Many young girls now head households, are forced out to work and turn to transactional sex to support their families. When your mother asks you to sell in the street, don't go inside building or out of sight. When a man calls you to come inside, do not go. If you get abused or attacked, please shout very, very loudly. And I very much hope someone will hear you and we come to help you. Child to Child's radio project manager, Bella Tristram, has been based in the country since last October. She and Yusufu have noticed the impact on the older generation. The parents themselves also seen their children evolve in how the, the children articulate themselves on a medium that for them still feels remote. And then for them to see their children and hear their children actually using this medium so effectively right across their, their region, that's magic. I certainly noticed in the editing process as the project's developed, the children have become so much more confident and it's almost as though as soon as they started hearing themselves being broadcast, they then completely got it. Children singing, my own bodio, I must keep it safe, for a forthcoming Pickin' to Pickin' talk programme. They are encouraging each other to stay safe in a context when extreme poverty drives many of them to sell their bodies to allow their family to eat. Shama, that's uh, it's quite hard. I'm sorry for putting you on the spot, but uh, do you have anything to follow up with that? Um, yes, and maybe rather than talking about a specific country case study, because there were such interesting, important lessons learned across all of them, I actually also found very fascinating the process of coming up with the synthesis paper and the discussions in the Global Steering Committee, where we were trying to ascertain what works, what is the truth here. And there is, in fact, a line in the synthesis paper that says, hmm, there's no one truth. So how do we get to a truth that we agree on? And what was interesting is that the steering committee had a mixture of uh, very quantitative researchers and also researchers who who done more qualitative research. And we looked at different quality criteria for science. For example, generalizability and quantitative methods would be based on statistics and generalizing from that. Whereas a lot of the country case studies were qualitative and we had to look at theoretical generalizability in terms of trans how well the lessons could be applied across countries and how well they uh, related to a theoretical framework. So we went through uh, these different quality criteria and understood how they applied differently across quantitative and qualitative methods. And I found that that shared understanding that we developed through the synthesis paper and understanding the richness of these country experiences and um, 
and also looking at the implications in terms of how our learning and publication, in fact, uh, might be incentivized by mainly focusing on what worked and not really learning from what did not work. And I think that whole learning experience, even within these uh, case study series and the synthesis of lessons, I found really valuable and inspiring as well. So we've heard a little bit about uh, multi-sectoral working, about some of the lessons that are pulled out and, and perhaps some of the shapes of society and things that you, you felt um, really helped uh, embed some of these projects in, in and actually make them work. Um, the question now, I suppose, is what to do with this learning. Um, what is it that uh, people who are developing new projects should think about? To go back to the learning society theme, um, I mean, I don't think anyone's expecting there to be a sort of a cookbook on this is multi-sectoral collaboration and you know, press this button. I mean, it's never like that. But what I'd like to see is, is more South-South exchanges where, for example, the experience in Sierra Leone or the experience in, in South Africa uh, is, is more is, is, is invited about to learn about that. So a government from another country in sub-Saharan Africa might interact with South Africa to find out more. Um, so, so that continuing conversation um, that happens well beyond the forum I think the other thing, and, and, and this is more as a, I guess, as, a, as an academic, and that is this issue of, of this, the, the, the environment in which we can share lesser success. Um, and there's a wonderful phrase from Samuel Beckett that talks about learning and failure. Um, it's uh, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. And I think, you know, in this in this time where um, again, performance, whether it's publications or whether it's research grants, it's quite hard to talk about those things that haven't worked. But actually, you could argue that, as I said earlier, that we can learn such a lot from what, what are sometimes called heroic failures. Um, those where we really do sit down and say, OK, what would we do differently? How would we do it differently? And I suppose I'd like to see journals like the BMJ almost inviting lesser success. Um, I don't know whether we want to call it the Journal of Heroic Failures. That doesn't perhaps sound like a hit. Um, but something that actually invites that openness. And for funders who perhaps also don't want the donors that don't want to hear about heroic failures, actually, those of us who are would like to think we're part of the learning society, I think it's our role to encourage more openness. And uh, that, that's that real spirit of learning. So two things, more South-South conversations going on after the forum and also a real wish to ex explore and openly discuss. You know, I think a lot failures. of people listening to this podcast who work within a, you know, a clinical health system will probably recognise um, some of the, the things that you're talking about there, things about uh, no blame, about being open to discussing your, your issues, um, sorry, discussing your mistakes uh, or, or interrogating the system that's not quite working in the way that you want it to. But getting that culture is really difficult. Uh, we know it takes a long time to do that. It takes a, a lot of effort and goodwill and, and tackling some sort of fundamental um, issues around blame and, and so on. So I just wondered, was there anything that um, 
you could take from these case studies uh, from the countries in which they were happening or the systems in which they were happening that might explain some of the reason why the these projects could fu- you know function as kind of learning projects as it were thanks duncan yeah i think i think that's a very that's a very interesting one and and you're right i mean the, it takes time to create the comfort zone you know whether it's in the context of sort of clinical audit um or adverse event reporting i mean you're right in in, in the readership of the of the journal some aspects of this will sound sort of very familiar. Um, I think, for me, I suppose, I mean, part of it is is um, is this issue of incentives to to be open, um, or rather, removal of the disincentives to be not open. <laughs> and, and so, I would say, you know, beyond the sort of particular clinical environment, I think there's issues to do with funders, uh, donors. And, and, you know, and, and that's complex, you know, whether it's, you know, the UK DFID, Department for International Development, UK aid, for example, and taxpayers' money. I mean, of course, no taxpayer wants to be paying for heroic failures, however heroic they are. Um, but, but I think that sort of misses the point because the, the, the cost of repeating a failed exercise is, is, you know, you could argue is, is a sort of rights violation. I mean, you know, if we know that a drug doesn't perform well and has adverse effects, we're not going to continue to use it. Um, and it's, you know, it's upon society to have systems that mean that that sort of evidence is made public and used and, and people are held to account. And so this this situation of really the parameters of the pr- parameter of success in some ways is learning. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course, we want to prevent deaths. Of course, let's not lose sight of it. I mean, it would be foolish to suggest that. But my worry is the repetition. And as somebody who's worked for 30 odd years in the area of maternal mortality reduction, I see some things going round and round. And some of that is interventions that were tried early that didn't in that context or in that population work. You see them coming back in 2018, 2019. It is a waste of resource. And when you're talking about something like the global strategy, where basically we've got to do something to accelerate progress. So we carry on in the same trajectory of decline in maternal, newborn, child mortality. You know, the targets are not going to be reached in some countries. And so we've got to accelerate. And that means being very strategic with your investments. And if something has been tried and didn't work somewhere else, then the global community needs to know about that. And we try something else. Um, And so to me, it's a really essential part of accelerating. You know, we want to have acceleration in these outcomes. But to do that, we've also got to be very open about what doesn't work. And Shyama, you you know you work within um, the WHO and within that and other kind of these big um, cross national uh, bodies. Do you feel like that culture um, is there or or is developing? You know how how close to to being open and and creating that learning culture do you do you feel um, development sector kind of is? I, I think that with the SDGs opening up uh, an awareness and opportunity to work with other sectors, that kind of openness is developing more. I think um, the evidence base at WHO, of course, has been very strong. That's the basis of what WHO does in terms of setting 
norms and standards based on the best evidence from around the world, but it has been primarily biomedical. And this understanding of how different sectors and groups in society contribute to improved health outcomes, not only to reduced uh, reducing preventable mortality, but also in terms of ensuring that people can thrive and contribute to transforming the world. And those, uh, in fact, the updated global strategy has these three objectives, survive, thrive, and transform. And you realize aligned with the SDGs, this is not something any one organization or group or sector can achieve, or even country can achieve alone really is a global effort. And I think going back to the case studies, the fact that, uh, you know, in a clinical team, as you referred to, Duncan, there's a very clear understanding of what roles and responsibilities and expertise are within the team and where things could go wrong and learning from that. But here, when you're working across sectors, that's not 100% always clear in terms of what that expertise is or how what the ways of working are. And I think going back to first principles almost and making those shared, defining goals in a way that everyone can agree to, you know, setting out the assumptions, making explicit how decisions are made and being transparent about this. I think it it is forcing a new way of working for whether it's international organizations, governments, uh, civil society, and I think that's that's a positive, positive injection, if you were, of just new way of doing things, which which was uh, why the synthesis papers finally was titled "Business Not as Usual." <laughs> Very good. So both of you feel quite positive and and quite hopeful that um, the things that you identified and things you spotted in in these case studies. Um, are actually going to then spread further and, and spread into to a lot of other programs around the world. Yes, I mean, that's our, our hope and our intent. And I, I, I think uh, probably Shana and I both share, you know, I think if you've to become, I mean, you know, the, the, the challenges are, are not trivial, let's face it, you know, in, in different parts of the world, you know, the, 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 the challenges in the health sector and the challenges generally in development terms are non-trivial. So let's not be naive about this. But I actually think if you don't remain optimistic, if you become too cynical, then you're you're not an agent for change. You're not a you're not a facilitator of progress. You're a barrier. And so I think yes. I mean, as I said at the beginning, there's no magic bullet to this area in which we work. Um, so, but, but in the sense that these case studies have shown this this as I said in my case, it, this issue of openness, the willingness to sort of be challenged about results, and the willingness to sort of build and evolve. I think I think that that is is good grounds for optimism. Uh, no magic wand, no magic bullet, but certainly uh, encouraging us in the right direction. Uh, like I tried to uh, you know say earlier, there have been challenges from changing political systems, clashing ideologies, uh, erupting volcanoes. I mean, a range of things that can happen. But. Um, as Wendy said, it's so easy to be cynical now. And we are seeing that there are different ways of organizing society or mobilizing action, some constructive, not some not so much. And I think in a way, uh, despite all the challenges, despite how difficult some of the situations are, our working hypothesis in a way was that 
science and democracy and a common logic that underpins them is the best way to solve these societal challenges and evolve societies so that no one is really left behind. Um, that's our working hypothesis. And what's, op what's cause for optimism is that these case studies, these country experiences showed that in fact, that hypothesis could be true. And I think we have to keep testing this out. We are definitely in the, you know, uh, general news media, we see other approaches being tried. And I think it's a social experiment. And it's just a cause for optimism to see that this logic that underpins science, democracy, the active learning society, have shown to yield results and learning. You've been listening to Wendy Graham and Shyama Kuravilla talk about the collection Making Multisectoral Collaboration Work. That's now available on bmj.com slash multisectoral hyphen collaboration. I'll put links in the podcast notes. There you'll find all the case studies as well as the editorial and analysis we mentioned during that conversation. All of those case studies will be discussed at the Partners Forum, which is happening in Delhi on the 12th and 13th of December. Some of the discussions there will be live streamed and you'll be able to see them on our site as well as on various social media sites. Keep an eye out for the hashtag 2018PMMCHLive. That's it for this episode. We'll be back next week with the start of the Christmas BMJ. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss out on all that festive fun. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.